Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast. Ed and Alex back in the house. It's playoff time, and we're going to start with Saturday games. In the early game this week, it's the Green Bay Packers versus the Los Angeles Rams. The Rams surprised everyone, including myself, but Ed was on their bandwagon. He thought they were going to upset the Seattle Seahawks, so good for you for for getting that pick right. What made you think that the Rams were going to pull it off? Well, I, I think Sean McVay deserves a lot of credit. I mean, I think he's one of the top three head coaches in the NFL. Um, you know, there was a time where, you know, every team was trying to hire Sean McVay and his, his reputation's kind of cooled a bit. But I mean, he's still he's still one of the elite coaches in the league. I mean, I think when you have Aaron Donald and an elite defense, I mean, that that plays into things in the playoffs. You know, I, I know that they didn't go with Jared Goff, but I, I thought that Jared Goff would start the game and he didn't. But I mean, he ended up coming into the game and looking fine. You know, I I didn't expect Russell Wilson to have as bad of a game as he did, though. I mean, he he really, uh, you know, the Seahawks the Seahawks defense just isn't that good, and so, I mean, Russell Wilson has to put up big numbers, or otherwise the Seahawks can't win. The Seahawks offense got mauled by a great Los Angeles defense, and like you said, Russell Wilson struggled under pressure. He missed passes left and right. Uh, the Seahawks had what three turnovers. That was kind of uncharacteristic, and the Los Angeles Rams just ran all over the Seahawks defense. It was Cam Akers' show, and he showed up. The rookie out of Florida State had himself a huge day, and that's the reason why the Los Angeles Rams won. According to Bovada Sportsbook, uh, we've got the Green Bay Packers minus 7 versus the Los Angeles Rams. So are you taking the favorite in this game, or are you continuing to be on the on the Rams bandwagon. I'm going to I'm going to go with the favorite in this game. Uh you know, Aaron Rodgers in the playoffs is hard to go against. Uh, Aaron Rodgers had a great year this year. This is a Packers team that is very capable. They were the number 1 seed. I I think the Rams are beat up. I mean, you got Aaron Donald not 100%, Cooper Cup in you know, up in the air. Um, you know, Jared Goff, not 100%. I, I think this Rams team's beat up. I think you got Aaron Rodgers playing in the cold. It's hard to go against the Packers at Lambeau Field in the playoffs. Well, Aaron Rodgers looks like the favorite for the MVP award, for the regular season MVP award. I thought he had his best season since the 2011 campaign when he won that MVP award. It's hard to beat the Packers in Lambeau Field when you've got Aaron Rodgers playing as well as he is. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see that matchup between Jalen Ramsey and Devontae Adams. Devontae Adams has 18 touchdowns this year. And the Rams, I saw this stat, they've given up 17, 17 passing touchdowns this year. It's an incredible number. So it's going to be interesting to see if if Jalen Ramsey is going to get the best of Devontae Adams like he has He's done a really good job against DK Metcalf this year, and this is the reason why the Rams traded for him. This is the reason why they gave him the big contract to take the number one guy. And you know if you take away Devontae Adams, 
Aaron Rodgers is going to struggle because they don't have that number two, number three receiver. They don't have a dangerous slot receiver. They don't have a dangerous tight end. So it's going to be interesting to see if who gets the best of this matchup in this game. The late Saturday game, it's between the Buffalo Bills and the, the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens finally got over the hump. Lamar Jackson won his first playoff game against the Titans, 20-13 to in the wild card round. The Bills struggled a bit against the Indianapolis Colts. I thought the Colts were able to run the ball on them, and there was a swing of momentum there right before the half. The Colts were at the four-yard line, and they couldn't punch it in. They've had four tries, and on fourth down, Phillip Rivers threw a pass that went off Michael Pittman's fingertips, and then the Buffalo Bills marched down the field, and they scored the touchdown. That was a huge momentum swing that changed the game. What do you think about this? Did did it surprise you that the Bills struggled as much as they did against the Colts? I mean, the score was a lot closer, and I think people would uh, give the Colts credit for in the beginning of the uh, the week and or were you surprised that the Ravens were able to to pull off the upset against the Titans well I, I think in the in the Bills versus Colts game I mean the Colts are a good team I mean that that's the fact of the matter is, is that the Colts are not a you know an, a, a team you just roll over and yeah they didn't win their division they weren't playing at home and the Colts are not a slouch team I mean I think they're they're one of the more quality teams. I mean, the, the 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 Bills got a tough draw. I mean, being the number two seed and playing a team like the Colts. I mean, usually, I mean, if if anybody's getting a cupcake in the first round of the playoffs with the new system, it's 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 the it's the Buffalo Bills. But you know, the Col- the Colts are a good team. You know, I I think that's what made it a close game. I I do think the Bills are a good team. I I just looking at looking into this Ravens game, I just experience matters you know it's just that that's just how I see it I mean just a team like the Ravens has been there so many times and there's just so many guys who've been there and you know that defense I mean defense and running the ball is so crucial in the playoffs and that's just something the Ravens can really do and I I just you know I, I understand football is a passing league right you know NFL today and you know 2020 2021 I mean it's 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 a passing type of football league and you know the the rules are stacked that way but the fact of the matter is is that you still need to be able to run the ball you still need to be able to you know do the things on defense to win games and you know this has kind of been an adage uh since since I've been a kid is you know defense defense wins championships and so you know what I'm going to go I'm going to go with the I'm going to go with the Ravens um they've been there before Lamar Jackson's the X factor he's hard to contain and don't sleep on him, and I'm going to pick the Ravens upset over the Buffalo Bills this week. Bovada has the Buffalo Bills minus 2.5 versus the Ravens at home, so the Bills are the favorites. These are the, the two hottest teams heading into the playoffs. Both teams have been clicking recently. The Bills have a huge winning streak going. Josh Allen against Lamar Jackson last year. The Baltimore Ravens tripped over here in the divisional playoff against the Titans. They they conquered that feat in the wild card game this year. Can they advance against the Buffalo Bills? I'm also taking the Ravens. I actually agree with you. When it comes down to the fourth quarter, when you have to control the clock, you have to run the football. And they've got Lamar Jackson and J.K. Dobbins. They can run the ball. And they play good defense. They stop the run. The only thing is, the Ravens have an experienced secondary, but can they match up against Stephon Diggs and those Buffalo receivers? Because 
Bills are going to throw the ball. I mean, they're not going to test that that Ravens rushing defense. And I think, and they can't test that defense just because they don't have a, a huge running game to go with it. They're just going to try to throw the ball and uh, they're going to put it in Josh Allen's hands. So that's probably my question mark. I realize they have Marcus Peters and, and Humphrey. They've got a good secondary. I just, I wonder if they're going to be able to contain Stefan Diggs and, and the other wide receivers that have stepped up like Gabriel Davis and and Brown. It's going to be interesting to see. And again, uh, the the Bills also got over the hump. They beat the Colts. Last year, they, they lost in the wild card round against the Texans. Ed and I both picked the, the Baltimore Ravens. We believe that this year, they're ready to, to make that run to the AFC Championship game. Before we get to Sunday games, a little bit later on in the show, let's talk about Doug Peterson getting canned with the Philadelphia Eagles. I realize he had a bad year. There just something happened even behind the scenes uh, with Jeffrey Lurie and the owner and Howie Roseman. I'm just surprised that Doug Peterson lost his job. Three years ago, he won the Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles. But this is, I like to say, this is a win now league. What have you done for me lately? And Doug Peterson has struggled to get a winning record in there. You're all about giving second chances. Do you think the Eagles made the right move here? I, I, I do defend the Eagles' move here. And Carson Wentz, Doug Peterson had a falling out, and the the organization pretty much had to pick between one or the other. The problem for the Eagles is that they have so much guaranteed money tied up in the next couple of years in Carson Wentz. It just made it impossible to get rid of Carson Wentz. And, you know, you, you think with the year that Carson Wentz had, I mean, he, he doesn't have a lot of guaranteed money. You know, you, you say, you know, see you, Carson Wentz, we'll trade you, you know, we'll draft a guy. This is why this is why teams, you know, are, 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 are careful about how much guaranteed money they give. And obviously when they when they gave him the contract, they, they you know, Carson Wentz's career was looking a lot better. But there was there was a relationship that was irreparable. And, you know, one guy has to go and one guy has to stay. And I, I think Doug Peterson was the guy to go. And, you know, I, I could see Doug Peterson getting another chance at another you know, organization and stuff like that. It's just, you know, the, the, the performance is bad. I don't think this is like an Adam Gase firing where, you know, Doug Peterson is just so incompetent that they can't, they can't, you know, go with him anymore. I think, I think this really had to do with the relationship with him and Carson Wentz. There are a lot of jobs open there. Are, besides this Philadelphia Eagles job, there are six jobs that are open right now. And Doug Peterson is a competent coach. So where do you think where do you think he would be a good fit? Because I can't imagine Peterson sitting out a year with all these jobs being open. One thing, one thing that I would, I think, would make sense would be like a team like the Falcons. They don't, they're not quite ready to rebuild. You know, they still have Matt Ryan. You know, maybe you want to roll with Matt Ryan, and you know, Doug Peterson could kind of be the guy to, you know, sort of steer them in direction of, you know, drafting a quarterback if they have to. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I think you know Matt Ryan, Doug Peterson. I think that could be a good match. Um, I, th- I think Matt Ryan is a little bit easier to get along with. So I, I actually like him taking Dan Quinn's job in 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 Atlanta. You know, maybe the Jets say, hey, you know, we're we're done taking these young, risky, you know, coaches, and they say, you know what, we want we want someone who's a little bit more stable, who's won before, and um, you know, the Jets maybe that that's what they where they go. 
Well, both places make sense for Doug Peterson. I agree with you. And as far as falling out between Wentz and Peterson, that's that's been out there. And I also agree with that point. I mean, it's, it's easier to get rid of the coach than trade your star player that you committed so much money to. Nobody's going to take that contract. and You're not going to eat it. So it's easier to, to bring in another coach to repair Wentz, possibly, compete with Jalen Hurts and during training camp. I think a few names to keep an eye on. I mean, they have to get an offensive coach. The Eagles have to get somebody to repair their star quarterback. Eric Bieniemy, Brian Dable, Arthur Smith. Those are the obvious candidates, in my opinion. Joe Brady's name has been mentioned. I just think it's a bit too early. I mean, he's only been an offensive coordinator in the NFL for one year. I thought he struggled in that role with the Carolina Panthers this year. It was kind of up and down. I think Brady is going to be a hot commodity, but not this year. I just think this is is a bit too soon for him. How about Lincoln Riley here? What do you think about that? I mean, he's been a quarterback whisperer in college. You need to repair Carson Wentz. He coached Jalen Hurts. So I'm sure it's going to be like an open competition. Why not throw the money at Lincoln Riley and give him a shot? He's a young up-and-coming coach. He's only 37 years old. I think that would be a great move. And, uh, you know, Lincoln Riley, I mean, he's used to being kind of at the center of things. I mean, being you know playing in that, that market. I know Oklahoma is not the most populated part of the country, but, I mean, the Oklahoma Sooners have a great following in their area. And, you know, he, he's sort of at the center of a lot of things. I mean, you know, he go, moves to a city like Philadelphia where there's going to be a lot of pressure. I saw Lincoln Riley fix Spencer Radler this year, and that gives me confidence that he could be maybe the guy to fix a Carson Wentz. Um, there's more money. I mean, Lincoln Riley's done a great job with the Oklahoma Sooners. I mean, the Oklahoma Sooners, I mean, you, know, you, you expect Texas and Oklahoma to kind of battle it out for the Big 12, but it, it's been Oklahoma's conference. You've said off the air, I mean, this, this new idea is, is, you know, take the hot college coach coach and you know work with him as opposed to um you know trying to take a, a coordinator i mean one thing that i'm noticing is that i mean Bienemy, you know he he has the resume i mean he fits all the parts but for some reason just teams are not pulling the trigger on him and it, i mean it's, it's kind of curious i mean is he is he just not a good interviewer or um you know i mean some people say you know he was just at the right place at the right time but I mean, for me, for me, I, I think eventually someone's going to have to pull the trigger on Eric Bieniemy taking the job somewhere. I remember a time when Mike Zimmer, he used to be a defensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys, he didn't interview well for these head coaching jobs. And he was almost like depressed. He was almost like giving up. And then he, he kept going out there and he eventually got that Minnesota Vikings job. And we've seen the job that he has done in rebuilding that franchise and making it, bringing that winning culture there. I think it's the same thing with the enemy. I mean, he might not be like a great interviewer, but he's played the game. He's been in Colorado. He's been in the NFL. He's been an assistant. He knows the X's and O's. The Andy Reid coaching tree is a good one to hang your hat on at this point. I think eventually he'll get that job. I think he'll still get a job this year. Somebody's going to you know, give him that job. I just think give them time a little bit. And I mean, right now it seems like the teams have to wait for Biennemi 
because he's in the playoff race right now. And a lot of people are speculating that he hasn't had some good interviews. That seems to be the theme out there, right, that people have written about. But I'm not buying it. I think Biennemi is is a great man. And just look at the job that he has done with the Chiefs. And I think you could do a lot worse. I mean, he would be at the top of my list to to bring in for, for head coaching jobs. Let's bring in our first guest to the show. We're joined by UAB wide receiver and 2021 NFL draft prospect, Myron Mitchell. Myron, how are you today? I'm good. How about you? Doing well. Watched that national championship game, and you mentioned off the air that you didn't have a favorite NFL team. Growing up, did you root for Alabama? I did. I really wasn't a diehard Alabama fan, but since everybody in the household was an Alabama fan, I was just a bandwagon and just rooted for Alabama. You know, when you watch a guy like Devontae Smith, you guys are the same size, build. Are you impressed with his play? I mean, what do you take away from watching Smith on the football field? I've been keeping up with him a little bit before he was at Alabama, and uh, he already had a little a little attention, or he was already talked about before Alabama. It was just uh, his size. So once he got the proper training and the right people to train him, I really didn't see his performance as a surprise. I kind of knew he was all, always going to be the go-to receiver since the national championship game winning catch. So it really didn't catch me by surprise. When you look at the way he runs routes, are you impressed by uh, the, the nuances that as a college receiver that he is able to, to separate from those DBs with, with real ease? Yeah, as of right now, it's looking real easy for him. Uh, he get open whenever he wants. He can run any route in the route tree. And as of right now, nobody in college football can guard him. All right, enough about the national championship game in Alabama. Let's uh, let's focus on you. Myron, why did you decide to declare for this year's NFL draft? You had an extra year. What went into your thought process? So at first, I was going to enter the transport portal, but I had a couple of agents reach out to me, and they explained where I stood at in the draft. And they basically told me that the numbers would be kind of slim this year as far as getting drafted go because of the extra eligibility year. It's so many kids coming back to try to uh, raise their draft stock for next year. I really don't mind competing, so why not just take the chance on it and bet on myself? I feel like I'll be ready as long as I get the proper training, and as of right now, I'm getting the proper training. What makes you a good candidate to make an NFL roster in 2021? Uh, I just bring a lot of different things to the table. I can play outside. I can play inside. I can do punt return. I can do kick return. Basically, whatever you just need a spark at, I can play it or do it. Or whatever you need me to do, I can do it. Can you play gunner? Can you cover kicks? Is that also an extra dimension to your game? I actually did kickoff at Butler Community College just because I asked to do it seeing who can get down the field the fastest to hit somebody. But that was my sophomore year, and that was the last time I played special teams rather than going to tackle somebody. Myron, what are you training right now? What facility did you decide to go with? Booth Performance in Nashville, Tennessee. Is that something that your agent recommended to you? Is that the reason why you went with them? 
actually Booth's performance, they reached out to me first, but I really didn't know anything about Booth's performance. And then I did my research, seen a couple people train there that's in the NFL now. And then that's when the agent came along and he recommended me to go to Booth's performance also. All right, we know that you got an invitation to the Tropical Bowl All-Star Game in Orlando that you will begin to play this Friday and over the weekend. What's your mindset going into that event, and how are you preparing for it? Basically just doing the same thing I've always been doing, getting the proper training, getting the proper sleep, just refreshing my mind on plays. Uh, I watched some of the old game films that I've played in at UAB just to stay fresh on game plays and concepts. I'm really taking the same approach as I do to every game. It's really not a difference. It's just the all-star game in a different state. Who showed interest in you coming out of high school in Alabama? Nobody, actually. Why did you uh, settle on the Butler Community College in Kansas? Did you have a connection there with your high school coaches? It's a long way from Alabama. It definitely is. Uh, I actually verbally committed to Hines Community College, and at the time it was only like a seven or eight out-of-state rule. So before I actually signed, it was probably like a day before I was supposed to sign my national letter of intent. They called me and told me that a receiver, he didn't qualify to get into LSU. They actually dropped my scholarship and gave it out to him. So we was just basically waiting to see if he qualified or not to see if I could actually commit and he didn't end up qualifying. The next day I let my head coaches know that for my high school, they had a couple opportunities for me, uh, Independence Community College and Butler, along with Hutch. And I just did my research, and Butler just seemed like the perfect fix for me. And they're a winning program. Really can't go wrong with a winning program. I know that you initially committed to Texas Tech. How did UAB come into the picture? Why did you go with the Blazers over the, the Red Raiders? I was home one day out in Birmingham, Alabama, and they seen I was in Birmingham, and they uh hit me up through Twitter and asked could I take an unofficial visit. And this one started they, this the year they had made the bowl game out in uh, the Bahamas. I was really just waiting to see how the season played out to see if I wanted to come back home. And they actually uh, ended the season 8-4. and four. So I was like, why not come back home and play in front of my friends and family? And they can actually come to the game and be at the stadium while I'm playing rather than just watching me on TV and only getting to come to one or two games out in Lubbock, Texas. What was it like to win Conference USA this year and beat Marshall? Uh, it was a really cool experience just because of the pandemic. Uh, it was a lot of teams that counseled on us. We really didn't even know if we was going to have the opportunity to even make it to the championship game. But we just stayed grinding every day. We didn't miss a week of practice. We didn't take any days off. We just always stayed prepared. It was just kind of like a bittersweet moment, just staying on path and getting it done when nobody really seen that we could get it done. Myron, the 2020 season was different. Obviously, you had COVID, you had frequent tests, you had no fans in the stands. Talk about this unusual mm -hmm. year in college football. It was different, a lot different. We actually got to have fans in the stands, but it was limited. So it really wasn't the experience I got from my freshman year. And what it really all came down to is just 
staying focused and being mentally prepared for whatever happened. We practiced for maybe like two weeks straight, and then a game got canceled on us. We could have just dropped our head and really just gave up, and we really could have opted out because they gave us that option, but everybody just stuck to the plan and was mentally healthy and was physically prepared. So it all came down to just being prepared and mentally ready. What's your biggest strength? My biggest strength? I would say just giving the team a spark. If a play needs to be made, you can call my number and I'll make the play. Really just being a playmaker. What area of your game are you working on right now? I'm just working on the little detail stuff right now, like using my hands throughout my route, uh, man coverage, just getting a better inside release and understanding what the DB trying to take away so I can use that to my advantage and really just knowing the defense overall rather than just knowing what this DB trying to take away from me. I'm starting to get into more tune of uh, the coverages and what the linebackers' responsibilities are just so it'll make my job easier. And I can also be on the same page as the quarterback. I wanted to ask you about your teammate, Austin Watkins. He is one of the hardest workers I've ever played with. He come to work every single day. He's self. Uh, he's not. He's not a selfish player. If it's not going his way in that game, he depend on me to make a play. Just as it goes for me, if I'm not going, I look for him to make a play. He really motivated me every day just because he was ready to work. He set a goal coming into UAB and uh, he reached that goal. He was there a semester before me, so he kind of really taught me the ropes when I got there. And we basically competed every single day at practice who has the most drops, who caught the most balls, who made the most acrobatic catches. That's a, a real lifelong brother that I created at UAB. And I wish him nothing but the best in the future, which I know he will be the best in the future. Tell me, what was it like to, to face off at UAB against that secondary? You guys had a lot of talented guys, Bronte Harris, Dijon Turner, T.D. Marshall. What was it like to, to face off and, and go against those guys in practice each and every day? Uh, it was fun. We made each other better. It was like iron sharpening iron. It was those days where we did bump heads, but that's normal coming from a teammate, uh, competing, going against each other every day. But it was just fun watching each other grow and watching each other become great players because at first coming in, it really was tough. We just had the uh, – it was tough for me because I, I was ineligible and uh, I was just coming to practice every day just to practice. I couldn't travel. I couldn't go to any games because I was ineligible. I just really focused on my craft, and I really got them guys better and they got me better, and they really got me prepared for my eligible years. Uh, it was good going against them. They made me a better receiver, and I'm pretty sure I made them a better DB. Is there an NFL wide receiver that you aspire to play like? In today's game, it'll be Justin Jefferson, and uh, back in the day, it'll have to be Chad Ochocinco. Okay, you're going old school for us. All right, with, with Chad Johnson. All yeah, right. definitely. Thank you for being with us. Uh, good luck at the Tropical Bowl this weekend. All the best to you during this draft process. Thank you. The national championship game was Monday night. It was 
Alabama beating Ohio State. I thought it was going to be a close game. You said Alabama was going to blow Ohio State out, out of the water, and that's exactly what happened. They just um, Alabama walked away with the win. Mac Jones threw for a ton of yards and five touchdowns. Devontae Smith had 12 receptions, over 200 yards, and, and three touchdowns in the first half because he got injured and he wasn't able to get back in the game. But if he did, you know, the way he was going, he was going to put up, he was going to set a record in that championship game. I've never seen a wide receiver dominate the way Devontae Smith has dominated in the big games this year. I had to go like way back during my dinosaur years and and try to pick my brain to come out with the name. And there was a guy, his name was Peter Warwick. He played for the Florida State Seminoles. He was the fourth overall pick by the Cincinnati Bengals in the 2000 draft. He dominated. There was a year that he just, he was the focal point of that Florida State offense. And he came up with that huge game against Virginia Tech, Hokies, and Michael Vick. Uh, and he won the MVP. So Peter Warwick comes close, but but Devontae Smith still tops him because the the game that he had against Florida, the game that he had against Notre Dame, and now he just caps it off against uh, against Ohio State Buckeyes. I mean, I know we're living in the moment right now, but Smith has got to be the first wide receiver off the board, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, I I, I think his game translates the NFL. I, I just I, I think w- w- what you have to do with him is you have to put him in the slot. I think I think that's really what you know. You make him your slot guy, and but I, I think he's going to be a great NFL receiver too. I loved I loved you know when he gave up to the you know Heisman speech. He didn't expect to win. I mean, this isn't a guy with a big ego. I mean, he just kind of went up there and said, you know, no one expects me to win, and um, you know anyone can do it, and. I mean, it, it was just very, it was very genuine, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't some canned speech. I mean, sometimes it feels like, you know, with these college football and, you know, there's a lot of politics and stuff like that. I mean, he, he kind of went up there and just said, you know, I, I can do it. You know, a lot of people didn't believe in me. And I think he was probably, you know, ready to say, you know, Mac Jones did a great job or Trevor Lawrence was great or something like that. And I think this is, you know, I, I think sometimes with this wide receivers is sometimes these guys are divas. But the, I mean, his tape. I mean, he can do a lot of different things for you. I mean, he 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 does. You know, have the athleticism to go up and get that high high you know high point ball. You know, so there's 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 a lot to like about him. I think right now I, I've said this on Twitter. I think I think you go with him in the top five. Because you know what, college production matters to me with wide receivers. You know, college production matters to me, and we saw with Justin Jefferson. I mean, I, I think, I think you have to say. I mean, if jo- if Justin Jefferson can do what he did as a rookie, I mean, Devontae Smith can be a top five pick. Do you agree with me? I don't think he's going to be a top five pick because he's not going to run a four three. He's not going to run in the low four fours, and NFL teams are going to overthink it. You know, 40 time is not the most important thing. If a guy's a great route runner, you know this. If he can create separation, he's quick. He's got that acceleration after the catch or, you know, when he's coming off the line of scrimmage, that's what matters. Look at what he's doing against top competition. He's done it against LSU. He's done it against Georgia. He's done it against Florida. What else do you need? It's top competition. He plays in the SEC against the best corners that are going to play in the NFL as well, and he has dominated. So, yeah, I would make him a top-five pick, 
but he's not going to be. Maybe he goes top 10, but I do think Jamar Chase is going to get back in this conversation because they're about the same height. They're like 6'1". The only thing is Jamar Chase is about 205, 210. He's really strong. Devontae Smith is 175. But I like the comparison of Marvin Harrison because... Harrison is also a great route runner who can create separation. He was also skinny coming out of Syracuse. And look at the receiver that he developed to be. So uh, Smith needs to bulk up, but he's never going to be like 190. He's never going to be 200. That's not his body type. It's a tough sell for NFL teams to be a top five receiver. Like you have to be a physical specimen. You need to be like a Calvin Johnson or a Julio Jones or Andre Johnson, right? You need to be a big receiver. That, that can dominate in a number of ways. Or you have to be a speedster. Like you have to be really athletic with great 40 time, like Tavon Austin or John Ross. I mean, those are the guys that go in the top 10. And it's unfortunate. Teams tend to overthink it. I mean, if the guy doesn't match up from the frame standpoint or the 40 time, you start to question it. But look at the film. That's what really matters. And... This guy is, is flat-out amazing. I mean, I would want him on my team. This this is one of the guys that I would want. He's quiet. He goes about his business. He works hard, and it's just refreshing to see. What about this Alabama team, just in general? They just rolled over people this year, just like LSU rolled over people last year. I'm going to pose this interesting question to you. We are, we're always living in the moment, in the now moment, and everybody's saying Alabama is the best team ever. Would you take this Alabama team or that LSU team last year? Uh, I'm going to go with that LSU team. <laughs> I mean, that LSU team was just stacked at every position on the offense. So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, when you compare, I mean, you go quarterback for quarterback. I mean, do I want Joe Burrow or do I want, uh, you know, Mac Jones? I'm going to go with Joe Burrow. And Justin Jefferson, we saw what he, do- he did in the league. I mean, you compare him to Devontae Smith. Yeah, Devontae Smith. Uh, you know, probably better college receiver. But, I mean, Justin Jefferson is no slouch, so, you, you know, you compare it that way. You, you compare, you compare you know, Edward Zelaer to Najee Harris. Um, I give Najee Harris the the edge, but, I mean, it's not, it's it's close. I mean, Edward Zelaer had a great year. Both offensive lines are great. <laughs> I mean, that's a good question, but I, I, I have to go with that that LSU offense. And, I mean, if you look at the defensive side of the ball, I mean, both both are talented. Um, I, I thought there was some real talent, you know, on the LSU secondary. You know, Alabama Alabama has talent in the secondary like LSU. I'm going to take LSU secondary the year before. So, yeah, I mean, Mac Jones said, you know, this is the greatest team ever. I, I wouldn't say that, but... Um, I, I do think I do think Alabama Crimson Tide are a dynasty, and this was one of the best Alabama teams. But yeah, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the LSU team last year. We're not gonna take anything away from this Alabama team. Like Ed said, this is the best Alabama team that he has seen, and um, Nick Saban captured his sixth national championship at Alabama and his seventh overall championship during his career it's an amazing feat and it doesn't look like he's going to slow down he kind of changed course a little bit right he was a defensive coach that started to bring in these innovative offensive coordinators and they kind of changed that the way he looked at football 
they just started scoring a lot of points and that helped them win a few more championships so it's it's an amazing feat they played against a very talented Ohio State team but it didn't matter it looked like they were playing against Vanderbilt during that championship game Alabama was just so zoned in it didn't matter that Steve Sark just accepted the Texas head coaching job. That didn't matter. Devontae Smith won the Heisman? Who cares? He still went out there. And Mac Jones, everybody doubting him, saying Justin Fields is a better quarterback. Well, you know what? Look at what he did during the championship game. He was efficient. He was accurate. He was making throws that make you go, whoa, wait a second. And this guy might not be the next A.J. McCarron, right? He might not be the next backup quarterback. There might be something there. So it's, it's take my hat off to Alabama and what they did this year. Let's uh, get to the Sunday games. We, the early game is the, the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Cleveland Browns. And Bavada has Kansas City minus 10 versus Cleveland. That's a huge spread. I'm sure it pains you that the Pittsburgh Steelers season is over. We know that no team can overcome the deficit of falling behind 28 to nothing, right? And that's what happened in the first quarter. I mean, Cleveland just jumped out. Steelers made the mistakes. Cleveland got the short field, and and they took care of it. Were you more impressed by what Cleveland did or how the the Steelers let this, this game get away from them fairly quickly? I, I think the Steelers team didn't show up that week. I mean, the fact is is that the way the way that Pouncey snapped that ball on the first play, I mean, you you snap it over a six foot five quarterback's head, and then you know it's like it's like the priority rule in baseball, right? Like you know, one guy's supposed to get the fumble and the other guy, and both guys are looking at each other like you get it, no, you get it, and it just. Uh, it just the team didn't look prepared. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger turned the ball over five times. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is the team turned the ball over five times, and you can't you can't win anything. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're Alabama, the NFL version of the Alabama Crimson Tide. <laughs> you know, you turn the ball over five times, you're not going to win in the playoffs. So the the really really for me, the Steelers lost that game. I give Baker Mayfield credit. I mean, he he's won a, Cle- a Cleveland playoff game. I want. I mean, it would have been better foot football if the Cleveland Browns had won that game instead of the Steelers playing a terrible game. Do you, do do you see what I'm saying? I mean, this was the big story. Was you know Cleveland? You know, who was always kind of the 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 little brother of the Steelers, and I just felt that it was it was it was more of a Steelers loss. A win is a win. I'm sure Cleveland fans are going to take it, and the Cleveland team is going to take it. I mean, this this is their first playoff win since 1995. That's a long-suffering franchise. You know, those fans have suffered enough. I mean, they won a playoff game, and then the team moved to Baltimore, and then they had to start all over again. So I, I give them credit. Nobody gave them a chance to win against the Steelers. No one. And they came prepared, their head coach being at home, watching the game in the basement. Alex Van Pelt called a great game plan. So got to give him credit. He's been on the Packers staff before. He's coached Aaron Rodgers. And they did a great job in the absence of their head coach, which I thought was going to be the key. 
take my hat off to them, but they've got a tall task this week against Patrick Mahomes. I'm sure you're taking the Chiefs, right, Ed? Yeah, you got to go with the Chiefs. I mean, it's just, you know, at Arrowhead with Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs, yeah. I mean, it's it's to be honest with you, I I, I mean, we don't really have to dissect this game. I, I think I think I mean, I think I said it all right there with Patrick Mahomes Arrowhead Stadium playoffs. I I think that I think we can connect the dots and see who's going to win that game. Well, if if Cleveland has any chance to win that game, they have to run the football, which I think they'll be able to do against that Kansas City front. The the Chiefs are going to they're not going to be able to control that line of scrimmage. Cleveland has a good offensive line. They've got the that two back system with Chubb and Hunt, and I think they're going to carry the day. I think they'll keep it close. I'm not buying this minus ten spread right here. When when people doubt Baker, he's got a chip on his shoulder, in which they're doing it once again. He he plays better. Let's go with the other game, the late game. These teams. They, they play each other every year, twice a year. They've already played each other twice this year, obviously. It's the Bucks versus the Saints. Uh, Bovada has New Orleans minus three at home versus Tampa Bay. The Saints won the opening game, and then they embarrassed the Bucks later on in the season. They just demolished them when Tampa Bay just didn't have any answers for them. The Bucks look like a different team right now. The Saints struggled against the Chicago Bears, having all those guys back, having Michael Thomas back. They only scored 21 points against the Bears' defense. Does Tampa Bay have a shot in this game? These teams know each other so well. I mean, this is, you know, the the Bucks are, are a little bit of a secret, but they're not a secret to the, to the Saints right now. And, you know, the Saints have beat them both times when they played each other head-to-head, and both of these teams are all in. And I think Drew Brees, he's really he really wants to make a run at the playoffs. I think he came back to win a championship. And I think ultimately at the end, it's going to be Drew Brees' game. Well, you picked the Saints, right, to win the Super Bowl before the season. So you're sticking you're sticking to your original plan. I mean, they're they're they they are a great team, and you know, I I mean, this doesn't take away from the Bucks. I mean, the Bucks getting eliminated in the division round, they're a worthy team of you know, the NFC championship. I mean, the Bucks are a good team. It's just, it's just the fact of the matter is, is that these, these head-to-head games have not gone well for the Bucks. It's tough to beat a team three times in one season. It's just, it's almost impossible if you look at the record. And the Saints have already beaten the Bucks twice. I don't think they're going to do it a third time. I'm a believer in Brady. I'm a believer in the Bucks. You say the Breeze is on a mission? Well, Brady is on a mission as well. He came here not to get into the playoffs with the Bucks. He came here to win a Super Bowl. And I just think that that team also has a chip on his shoulder, knowing that they got embarrassed by New Orleans last game. I'm taking the Bucks on this game. I think they're going to do it. Another five seed takes this playoff game and then gets the upset. It's not much of an upset. I mean, it's only minus three. We enjoyed having this guest on before, and we decided to invite him back. We're joined by Angelo Carriero. Uh, he can be heard on ESPN 1300, 92.5 in Lexington, Kentucky. Angelo, welcome to the show. Glad to be back, gentlemen. Thanks for having me back on, of course. You know, Kentucky had an average season this year. Uh, they finished middle of the pack in the SEC East Division with the 
five and six record. Sum up the season for us. Just how did it go for Kentucky? Well, I would say that average season is pretty fitting um, in general, especially for Kentucky standards. I think whenever you look at the you know first time playing an all SEC schedule outside of the bowl game, of course, finishing the year four and six in the regular season is kind of on par and, and really for Kentucky is pretty good knowing the history that at least I've grown up in to where, you know, the big game was uh, against Vanderbilt to get that one SEC win on the year. So it's a, it's a far, far jump from what the university of Kentucky Wildcats used to be in football. A lot of that has to do with coach Mark Stoops and coach Vince Morrow and what they have done. The season was really, uh, there were two, monumental just sad things that happened to this program at first in the summer four-star linebacker big ohio state recruit uh chris oates who came to kentucky over ohio state he was poised to be the best player on the team and he had a medical condition that currently has him in a, a wheelchair and it seems like that his health is dire now he is he is functioning he is active but it seems like that whatever he had took a pretty brutal impact on him and he has probably not only lost for the season but likely done for his playing career which is just huge to experience as uh, uh, one of their teammates Josh Pascal last year was fighting through uh, melanoma and skin cancer and then the creator of the big blue wall coach John Schlarman who used to be a he was a former high school player in Kentucky and northern Kentucky he was a, a starter at the University of Kentucky he was a head coach in northern Kentucky he was the offensive line coach at Kentucky he's been so huge in this area for such a long time he built one of the best uh, offensive line not only in the SEC but according to pro football focus in all of the country he passed away due to cancer in the middle of the season that had a mark not only on the offensive linemen but players on the team at other positions and former players all reached out to say how big of an impact he had on them and then right during the uh, Vanderbilt, Alabama, Florida stretch, and even a little before then, COVID hit the team uh, pretty hard in its biggest games of the year. So there was just a lot of adversity to fight, and yet Kentucky still finished one game below 500 in the SEC, and they ended up beating a top 25 team in their bowl game. All things considered, with everything they had to go through, the ineptness on offense, firing the offensive coordinator uh, before the bowl game, you have to think that even if they don't deem it successful, everything given, it was kind of a, a miracle season that they even got through the way they did. Yeah, can you can you kind of take us through that Kentucky Gator Bowl win? I mean, it, it seemed a little bit unlikely, and Kentucky came up on top. That was right around that New Year's Six time. I mean, so it, this was this was not a slouch of a bowl. No, the bowl was on January 2nd. I think it came to a surprise to maybe those outside of the game simply because NC State was sitting at 23rd in the nation and Kentucky was 4-6 and six going into the game. One thing that I realized was that NC State was clearly a paper tiger. If you look at their national standings, their total offense, passing offense, total defense, scoring defense, all of those stats, they hovered between 40 and 60, which is re near average in the entire nation. And so the ranking didn't really reflect uh, NC State's ability 
And when you look at Kentucky, before the Florida and Alabama stretch, Kentucky was below 20 points per game defensive scoring. So they were one of the best defensive teams in the nation. They just happened to run into two of the best offenses in the entire country. That really swayed Kentucky's national stats. And people from outside the SEC hate to hear it, but Kentucky played in the SEC. It's a different beast. It's a different animal. You know, it's not like it's not like the ACC where you face Clemson and everything else is kind of, eh, we'll see. You know, the SEC, it's, it's just different. And Kentucky came into that game. They grinded it out like they always do. Uh, Kentucky's top recruiter, Vince Morrow, one of the top recruiters in the entire nation, was the offensive play caller, and he ran the ball. He uh, used a little bit of uh, play action, trying to pass it with uh, Terry Wilson and some of the receivers. Uh, that has been the Achilles heel of the team all year long. But A.J. Rose had his uh, had a fantastic swan song. He was the MVP uh, of the Gator Bowl. He had a, uh, well over 100 yards rushing. The defense forced three interceptions on their quarterback, who coincidentally NC State's quarterback's uncle was a backup at Kentucky. So a little bit of a family connection there. But uh, Kentucky, Kentucky pretty well handled NC State. It was very, very, very chippy. I remember, and coming off the uh, Armed Forces Bowl, where I believe it was Tulsa and Mississippi State had that huge brawl, they were just throwing flat personal foul on sportsmanlike conduct flags left and right. It was really ugly. Who emerged as the leader or the backbone of this team? That is an interesting question because I truly don't think, and especially it's hard to, because when you're around the players and the post game and you and you see who goes to the post you get a you get more of a sense of that but because of covid times you only had the players really during the week and it was mostly only coaches that had the post gamers and the monday uh wrap up of the week intro to the new week i would just have to say that it was a unified effort really held under the tragedy that the team went through with chris oates and with coach uh, Schwarman's passing that there was almost uh, even though there was some infighting I think on a small level over the offensive play calling I think overall that this team banded together because of what they had lost and who they were playing for uh, one thing about Coach Stoops team since he's been here at Kentucky is there is no selfishness there is no individuality he truly molds this team into the definition of that word team. And so I don't think there was an individual leader this year. They were all playing for either each other or for their, you know, fallen comrades. I don't think it was an individual. I think that, I think they are just a, a cohesive team. So it sounds like you're a big believer in coach Stoops and what he's been able to, to do at Kentucky. Let's look at it this way. Being, being, a follower of the I cover University of Kentucky football now. I was a follower, a fan uh, beforehand, and I try to take that hat off now that I'm in the business. That's kind of what I think I'm supposed to do. So I, I do that. Now I look at Kentucky uh, constructively. I look at what Kentucky was from 2002-ish to now, and Kentucky has had two successful periods in almost 20 years. There was a roughly two- to four-year period under Coach Rich Brooks in which Kentucky had a win against a freshman, Matt Stafford, 
a number one LSU, a top ten ranked Louisville team, a Florida State in a bowl game, and a couple of other wins peppered in toward the end of the Rich Brooks era. Well, Joker Phillips took over, and I'm sure Joker Phillips is a very nice man and a good man, but it completely submarined the program. They went from steady to two and ten, and Coach Stoops came in and had to rebuild this thing from the ground up. And it culminated, you know, first, of course, Joker got his win against Tennessee. Well, it started with defeating Lamar Jackson in his Heisman season, and then you defeat Tennessee again, and you start to get that ball rolling, and it all goes to a 10-3 and season, which was Kentucky's best record since 1977. And people forget that uh, Coach Stoops is the guy that built the Florida State defense that he did not coach but ended up winning the national championship at Florida State. Again, he had come to Kentucky the year before they won the championship. He, along with Coach Morrow, now Coach Morrow is just as key to this as anything because he is such a good recruiter, and every single player points to him as kind of the guy that really brought him here, that that player here. And the recruiting classes have been steadily pretty good. There are couples that are better than others. For what Kentucky typically is to what they are now under Coach Stoops, it's just the results are in front of you. He has a, it, it, I might be slightly incorrect. I think he's six game above 500 in the last four years. He's the second winningest coach in program history. He's he's just done a lot to reform the narrative uh, of Kentucky football uh, to where at least it's respectable. Now, can he jump the program to the next level? I think that's all going to hinge on how good Liam Cohen is as coming in as an offensive coordinator. If Liam Cohen can build an offense around true freshman Bo Allen, I think that Kentucky could possibly win the SEC East in the next four years. But that is going to be what it hinges on. And if they can't do that in the next four years, we'll see where uh, Coach Stoops sits after that. They got to develop that quarterback. I mean, that that's probably half of the battle. That's probably like 80% of the battle. If you develop quarterbacks, I mean, that's what – college football programs that are successful that that's what they're able to do if they do that something they haven't done in the past since the the tim couch days right right and uh well andre woodson was pretty good there for a second but yes essentially since the tim couch days but uh if you look at the offense that's really been the the weak spot um eddie graham was a really good coach running the ball and i think that he doesn't get enough credit for putting lynn bowden back there and kentucky ripping off uh, what ended up being an eight and five season with uh, a couple of blowouts and a win over Virginia Tech, I believe in the Liberty Bowl is what it was. But uh, a lot of that could possibly be credited to Coach Slorman. And now they've got a new coach uh, coaching the offensive line. It was South Carolina's offensive line coach who has Youngstown, Ohio connections, which is where Coach Stoops is from, which is where Coach Merrow made his you know hay in and everything. It it will be a very telling next four years. But it all hinges on offense. We know he can coach defense. He's perpetually coaching defensive units that produce under 20 points per game scoring, even in the SEC, which is very impressive. Last year, like I said, it got marred by the Florida and Alabama game. He can coach defense, but he's got to get the offense going. And those two hires are really going to define, I think, what his next four years and maybe even his entire future is here at Kentucky. What was the major Achilles heel for the Wildcats that they need to address next year? I would assume you've already answered that. It's the offense. It's developing a quarterback, right? Passing, passing, passing. That's not just the quarterback, 
it's the wide receivers. Kentucky has not produced a drafted wide receiver. If you want to count Lynn Bowden, then by all means, but has not produced, I believe, a drafted wide receiver since Randall Cobb. And that was before Stoops got here. Every single year, the wide receiver core is underwhelming. And it is, I think a lot of it has to do with the way they've recruited. And essentially, it's come down to where Coach Stoops had to admit, because Coach Grand was one of his best friends. He did not want to get rid of Coach Grand, but he had to. Because I think that it was getting around the recruiting circles that wide receivers were convinced not to go there. And the joke was, if you want to be a blocker at wide receiver, you go to Kentucky. And, and wide receivers don't want that. So he had to change uh, the offensive coordinator to say, hey, you could come here, you could catch the ball, you could get to the NFL. And essentially it worked out. They got a four-star kid from Alabama named Christian Lewis that's supposed to be very good. They've got uh, Dekel Crowdis, who I've got to cover all four – well, he went to IMG for a year, but I've got to cover three of his years here in Lexington. He was a four-star wide receiver that had offers from Oklahoma, Texas. He chose Kentucky. And then a kid out of Louisville named Isaiah Cummings, who I think is – he was a three-star, but he should be really good. It's that along with Bo Allen, who was also a Lexington product. He was a four-star quarterback prospect. I have watched him play. I have never seen at the high school level locally – a kid that could pass downfield as accurately as he could in a high school offense that essentially was run like a college uh, spread passing offense where they just did route concepts down the field and he could just dime downfield throws. This offense and that quarterback specifically has the potential to turn this whole thing around when it comes to the passing game. But my goodness, the passing game has essentially been non-existent for almost three for three years. Are a lot of guys returning to this 2021 team? It doesn't seem like a lot of guys are coming out for the draft. Yes, uh, actually a lot of guys are. Um, a couple of key players decided to forego their extra year of eligibility to declare for the draft, one being Jamin Davis, who, depending on testing, I think could fall between the fourth and sixth round. He was a, a very, very good linebacker for Kentucky this year. We knew that he could stop the run, but he also showed some of his chops uh, intercepting some balls uh, this year. If anybody was the de facto leader, it seemed like maybe that he was the guy. Hard-nosed, just, just a really, really good linebacker. Just depending on testing numbers, I don't know how high he'll actually go. Fourth to sixth round sounds about right. Brandon Eccles is a guy that you all asked me about in the past. I don't know if he'll get drafted. He was obviously good, but um, – I don't think there was ever a ton of buzz when it came to all SEC uh, nominations, all of that. Our center, Drake Jackson, I believe, is going. But two of the biggest guys that are coming back, uh, or three, Darren Kennard is a guy that I fully expected to go to the NFL draft. He was a third-team All-American. He was a first-team All-SEC. He is an absolute road grader. He is a mountain of a human being at right tackle. Uh, it, it, he said that he got a second to third round draft projection, but he wants to go in the upper half of the first round. And I think under an NFL offensive coordinator, which was not his reasoning, if he can prove that his pass blocking medal is there, there's no reason that he shouldn't be a first round pick. And then Josh Pascal, I think it was the, when he was on the field this year, he missed a couple of games and he was in and out of some because of injury. He is a first round pick to me. 
he was an outside linebacker that this year was turned into a 3-4 defensive end at 280 pounds, which you all know is pretty light for a three-down uh, three lineman lineman. The other two linemen on the line were 360 pounds and 330 pounds, and he was 280, and he was the best of the three. He could take 310-pound offensive tackles, wall them up on the line of scrimmage, and shed them for tackles. He was able to pass rush from the five technique, like bend the edge from the five technique, which is unheard of. He, he is such a talented and special player athletically and skill-wise. He is coming back for his senior year, and I would not be surprised at all if you all really start getting uh, the buzz caught around him with a fully healthy season next year. What kind of year did Terry Wilson have? He had a rough year. He was out one game with an injury mid-season. He was in and out of the lineup where the passing woes were very obvious, but uh, former four-star quarterback Joey Gatewood couldn't make his imprint, and Bo Allen didn't really get his chance to take over that spot. They were pretty committed to Terry this year uh, as the starter, unless one of the other two blew him away. He's a good kid. He's a competitive kid. He can run. And he is very good on on design runs, scrambles, all that. Unfortunately, he's just far too inaccurate. He threw the ball out of bounds uh, numerous times. I can't even count how many times there was a deep route. It was just seven yards out of bounds. He was. Uh, it's not like his receivers were doing a ton to help him. But, but you know, if he threw a tight spiral in a window, I'd be like, wow, that was a nice pass by Terry. But, like, there were some games, man, where he had, like, one good throw a game. It, it, it was just really, really rough for him as a passer. He came back from an injury, other than the Auburn game, where he had just some just awful, awful turnovers in the situations where you could absolutely not have them. He didn't really do that anymore the rest of the season. But then again, he didn't really do much in terms of anything in the passing game. He decided to transfer. He is in the transfer portal to play that last season elsewhere. Um, I think everybody here wishes him the best of luck. I think everybody here appreciates the person he was. Uh, He's very polarizing as a football player, but maybe after 10 years, 20 years, uh, when this, when we look back at this era, he still was the quarterback of a 10 and three team uh, that, that did produce the best, season Kentucky's had since 1977 hopefully we we can look back at him fondly but his passing just wasn't good enough for what the offense needed to do what was a freshman that you liked on this Kentucky team a freshman that I liked on this Kentucky team well there were only a couple that really got playing time I would say the number one guy that pops out into my mind when you ask me that is Vito Tisdale I believe he was an Army All-American. That's where he committed to Kentucky. He had multiple major Power 5 offers. He was a four-star safety from Kentucky. He is a very aggressive and very violent defender at safety, but he is also athletic. He didn't get a ton. No freshman really got a ton of playing time. The other guy would be like Michael Drennan, but he only got – the occasional play, uh, Jaton McLean. But really, if you're looking at a guy to kind of circle as future NFL draft 
player, it, it seems like that guy should be Vito Tisdale. He's very, he's very fast, but he is very violent. Um, he, he actually knocked Eccles out of the bowl game. He was going to make a tackle with Eccles, and he hit Eccles so hard, Eccles threw up on the field and was out for the rest of the game because of that hit. It's just no mercy, man. I, look, I'm not comparing the two as talents. I'm just saying stylistically he kind of has that Jamal Adams aggressiveness. I hear you. I hear you. How, how is this team doing in recruiting? That's a good question because, like I said, when it comes to the skill positions, it is very up and down, and especially at wide receiver, it really took this recruiting cycle to get some of that four-star talent at receiver in there. Bo Allen was a, was a really good recruit at quarterback. I think he's the quarterback of the program for the next four years. I truly believe that. They're able to find running backs that are three stars and turn them into really good players. Like Chris Rodriguez is a guy. He was a three-star out of Alabama with no offers. I was like, why did they offer this kid? He might be an NFL running back. Like, that's how that's how good uh, he was this year. They consistently recruit well on the offensive line. Jagger Burton is a freshman that's coming in from Frederick Douglass High School here in Lexington, Kentucky, that seems like he's going to play guard. He's a little thin at the moment. But, guys, when I talk about, like, an athlete as an offensive lineman, he is an athlete. And when he puts on real weight, he will be an NFL-caliber athlete, like, to the point where he's a guy that you all should go ahead and mark down here for two years or three years from now to start kind of putting your eyes on. One thing that I will say is I was pretty underwhelmed with the last two recruiting classes, but they got a bunch of top, top, top-level defenders from Louisville, Kentucky, which is the recruiting hotbed of this state. And it was at the same time Louisville had a crap year and they just were able to poach all these top defenders like J.J. Weaver and Jared Casey. Um, but the one thing I, I want to make sure I get into that recruiting before we move on is that Coach Stoops, as good as he is at coaching defense, and he is very, very good. He has produced numerous draft picks from this defense over the years. He is just now recruiting four- and five-star defensive linemen. Before, he had to do it with two- and three-star kids that just got the job done and it let some of these special linebackers and defensive backs make plays. Well, now they got a four-star kid from Tennessee uh, that was top 250. They got a four-star kid from Kentucky, and then they got a five-star. He was a top 15 overall player in the nation in Justin Rogers, who Morrow and Stoops got from Michigan. This defensive line will actually have NFL caliber talent on it, and that is a scary, scary notion for the rest of the SEC because now it's going to be at least two levels at defensive line and linebacker where they're going to have NFL talent. And if they can figure out with Vito Tisdale and some of these other defensive backs, this is going to be a defense that rivals any in the country. It's going to be interesting to see. Hopefully your prediction comes true that this team wins you know, I mean, the SEC so. East in like three or four years and competes with the Florida and the Georgias. We're not talking about every year, but it would be nice to, to get Kentucky back you know, on top. You're a draft guy. You scout some of these players and these quarterbacks. There's mm -hmm. an interesting debate right now as we speak here and in the middle of January who's going to be that number two quarterback after Trevor Lawrence. Are you a Zach Wilson guy or a Justin Fields guy? Where do you stand on this debate? This is a good one because 
um, over the holiday break, I was able really to get my eyes on them for kind of the, the fir- I usually like to wait until after the college football season. Um, I think we can all get wrapped up in how a game feels or how someone feels in a game uh, compared to when you just kind of gorge the back-to-back-to-back-to-back plays, and it's a little more like math. I did get to watch Fields, and I got to watch Zach Wilson. My gut says that I liked Zach Wilson more. From what I, I don't really like to use the term gamer because gamer doesn't mean anything to me. Like you, you are what your tape shows. But I thought that he had a good enough arm. I thought he had some mobility. I thought he had accuracy. Everybody's kind of struggling with a pro comp for him. He kind of reminds me of a taller Baker Mayfield. That I wasn't in love with Baker Mayfield coming out, but a lot of that was due to you know his height, his lack of arm strength, and Zach Wilson is better than Baker at height, which is. But with his, even with his arm strength, I, I thought that he really showed some of those pro qualities that m- kind of separate the, the prospects from the pros. Uh, Justin Fields, I'm not saying that I don't like him. It is just hard when you're watching Ohio State to find the NFL throws. You have to get like four or five games of Ohio State Justin Fields games to get a game's worth of NFL throws. In NFL situations, I think Justin Fields is smart. I think he has great pocket presence. I love the way he moves in the pocket. I love the way he manipulates his pocket. And I think that he is a good decision maker. Sometimes that can slip, but I think most of the time, like everybody killed him for that Northwestern game. I watched it just as as a draft cut up. And I thought like he had three interceptions, but two of those I did not think were his fault. You've got to take everything into perspective. But I will say that there's something about Justin Fields that's missing that's, that keeps me from being like top five recruit, major college quarterback, multiple you know playoff appearances. There's just something missing with Justin Fields that I need to see before I submit him as number two. So in my gut, I would have Zach Wilson at number two between those guys right now. I'm not saying you're wrong, Angelo, but... I thought that game, the semifinal game, that's when Justin Fields showed what he can be in the NFL. He's not there yet, but they draft you based on what you can become in the next two or three years. So he didn't show you enough in that semifinal game when he just, it was him demolishing Clemson. I will I will give you two things. Number one, I would like to go watch that Clemson game as a cut-up. Again, I did watch that game. He did get hurt. It was impressive that he played through that pain. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be uh, soft about this. I thought Clemson's defense was terrible, especially their secondary. I mean, I know that's the number two team in the nation. I know that that there's still probably NFL players in that segment. They were awful, and those wide receivers. I mean, they were doing whatever they want. Now Justin still has to get the ball. He, I think he had two deep throws that were just on the money. So yes, there were those plays. But again, that from what I saw, like you said, like you asked uh, of Zach Wilson and Fields, from what I saw, I I just think that when it got a little tighter, like we saw against Alabama, didn't really work out. Uh, we will see. But you are right that Clemson game. If there was a game to say, hey, Justin Fields is closer to Trevor Lawrence than he is to the Wilson Trask Jones, uh, and then don't even get me started on Trey Lance, that group of players, that would be the game you would absolutely point to. We're going to put you on the spot. Obviously, the NFL playoffs are in in full swing. Uh, We're taping the show on Wednesday, right before the divisional round. 
Who wins the Super Bowl this year and why, Angelo? Convince us. Who is it going to be? I think that the winner of the Super Bowl, I've kind of picked them all year long. I actually thought this team could go undefeated. They finished 14-2. and two. When Mahomes starts, they, they are 14-1. Uh, and one. I, It's Kansas City for me, and it's not hard. Because what we saw last year, and again, Kansas City did show some signs of of cracks in the foundation those last uh, couple of weeks as they kind of limped towards uh, their first round by their offense can score in a way that I don't really remember seeing. And it's not like, cause green Bay or especially early in the year, they could put up 30, 40, you know, they can do that too. But what we saw against Houston last year, what we saw in the fourth quarter against San Francisco, what we saw earlier this year it's the point that their offense can score in bunches. And in the playoffs, when you have that ability, when if, if you're Tampa and you, and you have the hubris to say, we'll single cover Tyreek Hill because we don't think he can beat us, and then he goes off for 200 yards in the first quarter, well, that just kind of shows you that they can beat you however you decide to beat yourself. And when they want to score, they can score. They built the perfect offense around Mahomes. Uh, for him to be the guy that everybody adores. I don't think there is any team left that can score at the tit-for-tat pace uh, that they do. I don't think that there is a team in the AFC that can do it as much as people like what they saw out of Buffalo the last couple of weeks, and I don't think there's a team in the NFC that can do it for sure. So I, I just think that with, that with that scoring ability to do it whenever they want, however they want, I, I don't see Kansas City uh, slipping up here uh, even though i think their game against cleveland will be fun i think that'll be a fun game i think they still win but that might be a 10 point game you know but uh yeah kansas city for me and angelo is picking kansas city uh back to back last year people were talking about can andy reed win the big one well it would be uh it'll be great this is we're building another dynasty as they say angelo please tell us where we can find you on social media and any plugs that you'd like to do at Angelo Media Lex is the place I'd like everybody to follow me. Enjoy what I've talked about. I do tweet a lot about uh, Kentucky, uh, you know, football. I'll talk about the, the the local football scene, local sports scene. I, I know a lot of that stuff. You know, you probably care less of a national audience, but I do talk about my draft opinions. I do talk about other sports opinions, NFL stuff. And then feel free to direct message me. Feel free to at me. Uh, just give me a follow, and uh, you know, let's be let's be online sports friends, baby. That's what it's all about. We just share sports and we learn from each other, man. But uh, yeah, I, I have a good time on Twitter, and uh, come have a good time with me. Thanks for the knowledge. I appreciate it about Kentucky's football. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, I appreciate both of you, Alex and Ed, whenever you all have me on, and I hope to be uh, uh, working with you all in some capacity during the draft season uh too because uh nfl draft was always my first passion i take it very seriously and um i even uh, gave ed a, a little bit of my kyle pitts opinions and how uh special of a prospect i think he can be so stay tuned to that for the next time i'm on it would be great to have you on uh, write some columns you know join us on the podcast uh, you know the more uh opinions we can get about the draft uh, the better as they say thank you for listening to another episode of blitzcast take care everyone